You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ Family of Churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. I want to welcome everyone today. Hope everyone's doing good. It's great to see so many of you here. I know a lot of people are out of town, been traveling for the holidays, doing a lot of uh, fun activities, and it is an amazing time during the holidays as we get ready for New Year's, getting ready for the hope and promise of what may to come and looking forward to uh, kind of reflecting on our past year and looking for a better one to come. But during this time as well, uh, we've tried the last few weeks uh, to really look forward and set our minds back and look at the Gospels and what the Gospel story and the Gospel message had for us. And a couple of weeks ago, Todd talked about uh, just really God's plan through a Messiah and what His plan for our lives are. And then Steve last week talking about uh, just the story in that picture that we can all hold, the tradition of the nativity, uh, we're looking at what might be the promise and the hope to come of a newborn king. And so we kind of want to continue that theme and keep it going. And we're going to look at uh, today's lesson we're calling uh, The Return to Zion, Living a Life Worthy of the Gospel Message. All right? So Jesus was born, so what? I didn't get the present I wanted. Who okay, cares? A nice holiday. I got off a little work, but really, who cares why Jesus came? So I want to look at some of Jesus's words today, and so you guys know we're going to focus our time in the second half of John 10, and uh, give you a little background and set it up so you guys know where we're going to go with this. Is John 10 that second half is the only reference to the other December holiday that some people celebrate, especially here in West LA, and that's Hanukkah. It's actually called the Feast of Dedication in a lot of your translations. The word for dedication in Hebrew? One guess. It's Hanukkah. <laughs> so that wouldn't make sense. Um, but what you want to know, so what's going on, so we know that Jesus went during this time of year, and he used this holiday as a very profound uh, time to make a moment and a challenge. And in the second half of John 10, this kind of flows between John 9 and 10, where uh, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, would come to him and challenge him, and he would teach and challenge them back. And John 9 it talks about being the light, and uh, the beginning of John 10 talks about being the good shepherd, and then Hanukkah comes. And these guys and the, and the, and the players on the scene seem to be very testy for a very positive holiday. They seem to really challenge him. They get very angry during this scene. And I'm going to give you a little background as to why. Hanukkah, traditionally, is about eight little candles, presents, spinning a dreidel. That's what we celebrate today. We talk about the miracle of the oil, which, so you guys know, is actually probably considered by most uh, rabbis and by most scholars actually to be apocryphal, that it probably may or may not have happened. We don't really know. The real holiday of Hanukkah and what they celebrated at the time of Jesus was a time of freedom. It was a time of winning their freedom from the Greco-Assyrians, from the Greek army, which was very powerful and they were very weak. And what actually started the war was a priest, a rabbi, by the name of Matthias, refused to create due sacrifices to Zeus, the Greek god. And when he refused to do it, the Roman soldier, or the Greek soldiers, Rome, get ahead of myself, the Greek soldiers, the Assyrians, were going to kill him. So another gentleman stepped in and did the sacrifice for him. Well, this angered the rabbi. The rabbi proceeded to kill 
the man who did the sacrifice for him and violated God's law and proceeded to take his sons who led a revolt from the, millet, from the, from the mountains and it was a guerrilla war that went back and forth and then eventually they erected it. But what it was really, and why I'm telling you the background of this is so you understand where these people were at. So what started the war and who the war was really against was Jews against Jews. It was, had nothing, had very little to do with the Greco-Assyrians. What it was really about were the Hellenist Jews that had adopted the Greek culture. Wanted started to, they erected a statue of Zeus in God's temple in Jerusalem. They sacrificed pigs on the, on the altar to God. They did a lot of very unspeakable things that for a PG audience we won't say in that temple. And they went, and so then the, so this revolt was zealots versus apostasy versus heretics. And so they went. So whenever you read in the Bible and you hear some of the issues in Acts, we have an issue with the, with the Grecian widows, and you have the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. The attitudes went from, all stemmed from this incident. It stemmed from the fact that the Hellenist Jews wanted to fit in with Europe and were trying to change the culture and were trying to adopt and they were willing to pervert the scriptures and what God had commanded them to do, and had erected false gods in the temple. And they had gotten torn down. So this scene, so now they're on to celebrate, and so everyone's sensitive. Jesus is performing these different miracles. He's doing these different things, going around to teach different stuff. So you have a bunch of people that are feeling very emboldened because their predecessors 150, earlier, 150 years earlier went through and set things right. So how dare anyone come on the scene and threaten what they believe to be the truth? So who was Jesus? Let's find out from the scriptures. So beginning in John 10, I'm using the Tree of Life version, which is a fairly re, uh, new version the last few years. It was actually translated by 40 uh, Jewish scholars and Jewish Christian scholars and 40 uh, Gentile professor scholars as well. So there was kind of 80 people that did this translation. So then came Hanukkah. It was winter in Jerusalem. Yeshua, or Jesus, was walking in the temple around Solomon's colonnade which are the temple courts. Then the Judean leaders surrounded him saying, how long will you hold us in suspense? If you were the Messiah, tell us outright. Just tell us. Just own it. Who are you? What the heck are you doing here? We just celebrated Christmas. We just celebrated his birth. Why is this birth more important than other births? Who is he? What's he trying to do? Why do I need to pay attention to Jesus? I know that I hear about, you know, it's like if I wasn't, when I, before I came to faith, I used to think Christians were a little crazy. Christians got a little nutty this time of year. Why are they celebrating this birth of this guy? And they talk about the war on Christmas and all these other things that go on. And, but what's the big deal? You know, I used to try to antagonize his birth and what he was there. But then you come to realize maybe then, but let's find out from Jesus, who is he? This is the most important, one of the most important questions we can answer in our faith is who is he? He's the Messiah. He's who's promised. He is the one that has been prophesied and promised since the beginning. If you want to know one way that uh, Messianic Jews, Jewish, uh, Jews who believe in uh, Jesus, one of the ways that they uh, kind of refer to the Scriptures, and I kind of like this description, is the Old Testament is Messiah concealed. The New Testament is Messiah revealed. But it all leads to the Messiah from Genesis to Revelations. So here it says, continuing in John 10, verses 27 to 30, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands, hand, and I and the Father are one. So he answers the question this way, who are you? Well, if you knew, and he just told the story about the Good Shepherd previously, Ezekiel 34 talks about God being our shepherd as well. Jesus now makes the correlation that, that he is one and the same. But he says here, if you were my sheep, you'd know my voice. You would recognize and know who I am. You would follow me. And if you do, I will give you eternal life. The audacity of that statement. I will get, you will never perish and no one will ever snatch you out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. The Father's greater than everyone. So who are you? Why is the Messiah? Why does it matter that Jesus is born? Because the scriptures say he is the Messiah. He is the promised one who will give us and grant us eternal life, forgive us of our sins, save us from where we need to be, give us the life we hope to have. Actually, quite frankly, better life than the one we hope to have. The life I hope to have before I became to faith, I'm glad is not the life I have. But as we go through and we look through these scriptures and we understand that he is greater than all, how often do we think about the joy of our salvation, that this is about eternal life? This is about forever, ever. This isn't just for a little while. This isn't just for my lifetime. This isn't about because I didn't get the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. This isn't because I didn't get to marry who I wanted. This isn't because I didn't get the job that I wanted. This isn't because I don't have the degree that I wanted. I don't have the bank account I wanted. I don't have... You know, we can start looking at all these things. And that's one of the reasons why during this time we can look at the estrangement of families. We talk about... We all claim, you know, we all have from, come from some form of dysfunctional family. Oftentimes we think the church can be a dysfunctional family. <laughs> Might be right at times. But we have the Messiah to bind us. We have the Messiah to protect us. We have the Messiah to help us and keep us from perishing. Here they are celebrating a military victory, freedom from their oppressors. Here he's promising a more permanent freedom. Here he's talking about a freedom from sin and strife and the hardness of our life. He's promising us something, but it's in the future. Just like Jeremiah 29, we like to quote Jeremiah 29, 11 is a favorite of a lot of people. I know the plans I have for you to prosper you and not to harm you. And by that he meant stick around, stay in captivity, and in a, be comfortable in the slavery you're in now. Because in 150 years, your great-grandchildren are going to experience what you hope to experience. That's the backdrop to Jeremiah 29. So before we start claiming that promise, we may want to know what that promise really was. And here it is, he's promising us something to behold that we have the key to, but it's something yet to come. We have something to anticipate, something to give us hope, something to believe in, something to drive and strive for, that we're being prepared for an eternity with the living God. But oftentimes we can resist this. And what did they do with Jesus? Again, the Judean leaders picked up stones to stone him. Yeshua, Jesus, answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? That's a great response 
So when you're wondering about where your career is, when you're wondering about why your spouse is tripping, when you're wondering why you haven't found your spouse, when you're wondering why X, Y, and Z, why the Rams didn't clinch home field for the playoffs a couple weeks ago, why did God allow Alabama to beat Oklahoma last night? (laughs) Very personal, near and dear to my heart. It's a sad day of mourning. But we can focus on all these things. And sometimes we can get to a very serious, I make light of some of it, but some of these things about our relationship with our family, our spouses, our children, our careers, our jobs, our dreams, our hopes, our desires, we take out on God. We get angry at God. That is our spiritual stone that we want to throw at God. And the question Jesus has for you, which of the good deeds are you throwing the stone at me for? What are you talking about? I'm bitter. I'm mad. I'm angry. I don't have what I want. So are you throwing the stone at him because he gave you the waters of baptism? Are you throwing a stone at him because he gave you eternal life and salvation as a possibility and a hope? Are you stoning him because you have freedom from sin and are no longer defined by your past, but by whom you belong to? Are you stoning him for what? Count back and think of all the blessings and amazing things God has done in your life. Which of these are you stoning him from? And if you've not yet submitted to the living God, what is it? Is the nightclub your stone? Sex, drinking, rock and roll, you know, all these different things. We can go down the list of things that distract us and keep us away from God, that we replace God with, that we take out and we try to punish the living God when he's given us eternal life and promise we won't perish, promise that he'll protect us, promise he will spare us from eternal suffering. An amazing, amazing opportunity that we have. So once we realize Jesus is the Messiah, he pro- why is it important that he's the Messiah? Because he promises us eternal life. He promises a way for us to connect and be reconnected with the living God because we fall short of our sin. We realize that we can't resist him But then how do we get to know him? How do we get to know the Messiah? Well, good thing, Jesus tells us how to get to know him. In John 10, 37 and 38, If I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe me. If I don't do his works, I'm not who I say I am. But if I do, even if you don't trust me, we can all struggle with trust. Trust the deeds. Trust God's actions. Trust Jesus' actions. Then you may come to know and continue to understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He says, walk the walk. See if I walk the walk. And where do we find the walk? Where do we find the actions and where do we find the prophecies? We find them in Scripture. We can look at our lives, but we have thousands of years of history to find out and evidence to find out if he is who he says he is? Is this who was really prophesied and promised? Does he fulfill it? And has he changed your life? We've got a lot of questions we can answer. But he doesn't say, think it. He says, come to know. We need to know his actions. How much time do we continue to spend in Scripture? How much time do we spend examining it? How many of us in here have actually ever studied the prophecies to know if he is who he says he is. 
We believe it, and faith and belief are huge. But one of the biggest areas we get attacked in life is belief. There was a, a, a startling stat, and I can't remember the first part of the stat, but the part that stood out to me was American evangelical pastors. Over 20% questioned the historical accuracy of whether Jesus was really crucified and raised up from the dead. That's clergy in America. That's a scary thought. Why? Because they don't know the scriptures. They don't know the truth. We talk about it. We feel it. I feel an anointing coming on. And I can do that. You can be, there's nothing wrong with being charismatic. But if that's where it ends, that's being the pretty person with no substance. What happens on the second date? But if we're going to know this, we need to know that the scriptures are true. You can sit there and say, and some of you may say, but how do I know the scriptures are accurate? Okay. The Smithsonian, and I won't read the whole thing, let's go to the Smithsonian. Smithsonian Department of Anthropology. One of the most respected scientific groups in the world. Much of the Bible, in particular, the historical books of the Old Testament, are as accurate historical documents as any that we have from antiquity, are, and are in fact more accurate than many of the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, or Greek histories. It's saying the Bible is accurate. These aren't a bunch of Christians lining up to go, hey, we all love Jesus, look at us. No, these, these folks set out oftentimes to disprove the Bible. But they start to find out the more they explore, the more they prove the Bible. Okay. That's a historical study, talking about the Bible in general, but how do we know about specific things in the Scripture? Among the dozens, 200s, depending on which list you go off of, of Messianic prophecies, there is a bunch of historical data listed amongst it. So we can frame, does the Bible even get history right? R.D. Wilson, who wrote a scientific investigation of the Old Testament, pointed out, that the names of the 29 kings from 10 nations, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and more, are mentioned not only in the Bible, but are also found on monuments of their own time. So that means the Bible lists 29 kings in a certain order of certain eras of certain time in history. All 29 have been supported by archaeological evidence that they have found in those countries also saying the name of their kings. But in a more importantly, every single name is transliterated in the Old Testament exactly as it appears on the archaeological artifact, syllable for syllable, constant, consonant for consonant. The chronological order of the kings is correct. This is a minor miracle, maybe a major miracle in historical evidence, because usually when you go amongst cultures and everything, they write from their perspective, and they usually get other cultures wrong. And they usually do it wrong. But the fact that these guys cover 29 different kings over hundreds, if not a thousand years, that it highlights at different times in different eras that the Bible draws reference to, not only got it historically right, syllable for syllable, consonant for consonant, absolutely correct. So we also then know that, all right, perhaps, maybe there's some framework here, that these prophecies did exist when they said they existed, and they existed prior to Jesus. Okay, so the Old Testament's good. We could go into thousands of examples of this. This is just one. But what about the crucifixion of Jesus? That's what this is really all about. That's ultimately why his birth matters. Is there evidence of proof of that? 
Do we even know if he was really crucified? How about we go to his accusers and find out what they said? This is from the rabbis of the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century in a Talmudic book, an apocryphal book called the Sanhedrin. It's an it's a, it's a book, extra book. It's, the, it's a collection of writings of the rabbis from the first couple centuries. And what they say is Jesus was hanged on Passover Eve. Forty days previously, the herald had cried, is he being, he's being let out for stoning because he has practiced sorcery. We do have this event described in Scripture elsewhere. And led, astray, and led Israel astray and enticed them into apostasy. Whoever has anything to say in his defense, let him come out and declare it. As nothing was brought forward in his defense, he was hanged, crucified on Passover Eve. So the people who did it said they did it. They said that's who it was. They said why they did it. Every part of this is essentially the gospel, is part of the Gospels. So we know that's there. So this God who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am here. I was born. I come from the Father. I am part of the Father. I'm coming. I am real. This is not a tradition that we celebrate. These are very real events that have a very real outcome on the eternal nature of our life. Eternity is a long time. A long, 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 long time. But you can go, all right, well, that's writing. I can read anything. I like to trust my eyes. Okay. This is a Canaanite gate discovered 20, 25 years ago. Set this one up slightly because this one's kind of good. Genesis 14. The scriptures describe that Abraham rescues Lot who had been captured by the Canaanites. He brings his men, goes in, attacks it. They never found proof of where this city existed. So when they started writing the thing, another city had grown up near it, the city of Dan, from the tribe of Dan. Tel Dan is what it's called today. Tel Dan, which is near here, about a mile away, half mile away, they believed it was, so much so that when you read the scripture, no one knows the name of the city, so they called it the city of Dan, though the city of Dan didn't exist in Genesis 14. In the time of Jesus... They thought the story of Abraham and Lot, there was no proof for it. They thought it was a story. They didn't think it was real. And only in our lifetime, exactly where Scripture says it should be, this is the exact gate described where, when, to the era that's supposed to be. This gate is several thousand years old and only protected because they filled it in, the city had outgrown it, and they'd built another gate on the side of it, and then ground had come on top of it. They protect it. You can get about 30, 40 feet from it now, but you can go see this with your own eyes. And this is the exact gate described in Genesis 14 that Abraham went to rescue Lot. We have proof of Genesis. More supporting evidence. Another favorite story of mine in the Old Testament is about Mount Gilboa. And Mount Gilboa is where Jonathan and King Saul died in battle. And if anyone remembers what King David did or David did at the time, but would later become king. What David did during this time is he cursed the side of the mountain and said, may nothing ever grow here again. What you're looking at is what it looks like in wintertime. Summer, some flowers can kind of crop up, but they're really more weeds than real flowers. What you're looking down at the bottom in the valley there 
is where about 40 to 50% of the wheat and corn for Europe is grown, one of the most fertile farmlands in the world. And above it, you see the trees that they had planted at some point to try to make it. And what you're seeing in that barren strip is the exact archaeological place where King Saul and Jonathan died. And to this day, they don't like to talk about it, experts cannot figure out why nothing grows there. You can go see that with your eyes and touch it and walk on it and be around it if you want to. One of my favorite ones that we can misunderstand, which will lead us towards our thoughts and communion in a moment, in a few moments, about five minutes or so, is this is the remains of Caesarea Philippi. A very big incident happened here outside the city. There used to be a temple that covered that gate and a bunch of other things around there. Uh, most notably, this is the birthplace of the, uh, Greek, of the god, the pagan god Pan, from which we get Peter Pan and a bunch of other things. But the god Pan was created here, and the temple to Pan kind of covered that cave. And I'll explain why that cave's important. But in a very important incident happened here. In Matthew 16, Jesus, talking to Peter and everyone, this is when he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. He's beginning his journey. And so about a a week to two weeks before, he's here. And he sits there and he talks to them, says, who do you think? They talk about it. And in Matthew 16, he tells you that upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. We all think, that's great, man. Hell has got no power over me. Did you know he was talking about a literal thing? That cave you're looking at? by those in that town, was believed to be the gate to Hades. The river used to actually flow into the cave, and they would sacrifice virgins into this cave. And this city was so full of every kind of evil that most Jews would never step foot in there. Jesus, outside the city gates, has this interaction and says, this rock, The gates of Hades will not overcome it. You can go there now as proof that Jesus' word survived and the gates of Hades went away. They believe that river led people, their souls, to Hades. Now, this next part is conjecture to this, but one of the conjectures on this is that that river used to go through that cave and that at some point, somewhere around the time that Jesus would have been crucified, that river shifted due to an earthquake. Let you draw your own conclusion there. We can't say that with a certainty of fact, but there is a a growing amount of uh, archaeological evidence. But what we do know is, again, a very real place that had real control of the people in that area that Jesus said would not happen, that they would not hold, that it would be destroyed, that it would go away. His words came true again. And you, as a follower of Jesus, can go there I had the opportunity to go there with a group of disciples before and sing psalms and to be able to worship the living God from where they used to worship Pan, which is really about worship of debauchery. So as we kind of start to come on in for a landing here, we've seen with our eyes, with the scriptures, with historical data, that you have come face to face with the living God that Jesus 
the son of Joseph and Mary, is who he said he was, that he lived the life he said he did, and that he has a gift of eternal life. And whether you have come to faith and, and, have, and, have, and have, have that relationship with him, whether you've acknowledged it or not, the living God is at your door. The living God is there, and he chose to sacrifice himself for you and your sin. He chose to give you a way out, to give you hope. Not because the world is messed up, but because of your sin, because of my sin, because of who I am before the living God. He chose this for me. If, I, if no one else in this room existed, and only one of us was here, he still would do that for that one. I firmly believe that. And who are we? Are we going to submit to this? And what is our response going to be to the fact that you have now been introduced before the living God? Sometimes, some maybe for the first time, some for the thousandth time, but it's a decision we need to make every day. And the response that I hope we have is the one that the Israelites had when Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal and they had seen the miracle that God had done. What was their response? In 1 Kings... It says, when all the people saw it, what Elisha had just done, they fell on their faces and they said, Adonai, he is God. Adonai, he is God. He is the living God. And they fell on their face immediately. They didn't wait till they had their life together. They didn't wait till they found the home they wanted. They didn't wait till all the oppressors were gone and all the drama and problems in their life. They fell on their face immediately, acknowledged who the living God is, and submitted to his will. Are we willing to do that today no matter what is going on in our lives? No matter your bills, your bank account, your relationship status, no matter how much homework you've got, no matter what your dreams are, let me do this first and then I'll come to God. No. Our response should be the second we come face to face with the living God is to fall on our face, to worship Him, and to know who He is. Let's pray for communion. God, I just want to thank you for allowing us to be able to come before your presence, to have your ear, your heart, your love, to have your salvation. There is nothing more vital in our lives than your salvation. There is nothing greater in our life that we can accomplish than to submit to the living God and worship you and praise you the way you deserve to be praised. God, we are grateful for the miracles you've provided and performed in our lives. We are grateful for how you move around us. We are grateful for the sacrifice of your son, whom born to a woman, struggled through life, yet remained sinless, who died for our sins, who rose on the third day so that we could have the hope and the promise of a new life. God, we humbly come before you and pray that you accept our praise as an acceptable sacrifice to worship your name. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.